This is Alan Johnson, pastor of Old Peachtree Presbyterian Church in Duluth, Georgia. The Bible is God's Word. It describes itself as living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. Therefore, any encounter with the Bible is a momentous thing because it never leaves us unchanged. My prayer for you as you hear this message is that the Holy Spirit will use it in your life to inform your mind, to feed your soul, and to help you grow in your faith in Christ. Please take your Bibles and turn with me to Exodus chapter 17, looking this morning at verses 8 through 16. Exodus 17, verses 8 through 16. While you're turning there, I do want to just uh, repeat the announcement Mike made earlier about Thanksgiving service tonight. Hope you'll return to join us for that time. Uh, you have opportunity to uh, speak if you'd like to, just to give thanks to the Lord for blessings particularly or blessings generally in this year. Certainly no obligation to speak, uh, but I hope you plan to, to join us for that time. This morning we're looking, uh, as we continue our series of studies in Exodus, looking at Exodus chapter 17, beginning in verse 8. Hear the word of God. Then Amalek came and fought with Israel at Rephidim. So Moses said to Joshua, Choose for us men, go out and fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on the top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. So Joshua did as Moses told him and fought with Amalek while Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. Whenever Moses held up his hand, Israel prevailed. Whenever he lowered his hand, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hands grew weary, so they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it while Aaron and Hur held up his hands, one on one side and the other on the other side. So his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. And Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people with the sword. And the Lord said to Moses, Write this as a memorial in a book, and recite it in the ears of Joshua, that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. And Moses built an altar and called the name of it, The Lord is my banner, saying, A hand upon the throne of the Lord. The Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you, Lord, that we have the scriptures in our own hands, in our own language, uh, the abundance of your word, Lord, all around us and in our homes and in this church, that we can read it at any time. And Father, we thank you that, uh, especially in these times as we gather uh, publicly as a congregation, that we can study your word together and proclaim its message And so, Father, we pray for your blessing on the study, the preaching of your word. Use it to build your church. Use it to equip and strengthen us in the Christian life. Use it, Father, to feed our souls as we draw near to you. For we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Sometimes in life, you just need a win. Israel hasn't been doing all that well since the crossing of the Red Sea, as we've seen, uh, since that uh, epic victory and celebration. It's been pretty much all lack of faith in the Lord, discontentment with their circumstances, 
grumbling against Moses. When God brought Israel out of Egypt, the Bible clearly says God did not lead them by the way of the Philistines. That would have been the most logical route. But he didn't lead them that way because, as God himself says in uh, chapter 13, lest the people change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. God has spared them a great deal to this point. Now, they don't see that. They've been thirsty. They've been hungry. God provided each time. And nevertheless, morale was low. But now, an enemy has shown up. And it was time for them to learn that God's giving them food, God's giving them water was just child's play. That God could also give them victory in battle. God had spared them that, didn't lead them through the Philistine territory, but now it was too late to turn back, and now it was time for Israel to become battle-tested. Well, as you read this event that we just read, the defeat of Amalek, that was a great, obviously a great encouragement to Israel at the time. And the account of that and the memory of that was a great encouragement to Israel some 40 years later as they were getting ready to cross the Jordan River to go into Canaan for the conquest of Canaan to remember this very first battle that the Lord led them into and how he gave them the victory. And it's also meant to be a great encouragement to us as well as we read here how God took care of our spiritual ancestors. And the message from this passage is this. In our weakness, the Lord fights for us and he wins the victory. In our weakness, the Lord fights for us. And he wins the victory. Now, as you look at this passage, you could pretty much divide it up into, into three sections. First of all, their preparation for battle. Second, the battle itself. And then third, uh, and following something of a pattern that we've seen, uh, third, the memorial of the battle. So we'll look at it under those uh, three categories. First of all, the preparation we see in verses 8 through 9. We read in verse 8 that while Israel was at Rephidim, Amalek approaches. Now, Amalek is a man's name, but Amalek here wasn't a man. It was the Amalekites, the people, uh, the descendants of the man Amalek who have approached. Interestingly enough, these were descendants of Esau, Jacob's brother. So in a sense, these were, were very distant cousins uh, very distant, uh, coming from Esau. They were large, uh, semi-nomadic people, lived somewhat south of Palestine. And this was the first time Israel encounters them, but it would not be the last. Even as, uh, as, as far along as David, uh, we read how it was the Amalekites who burned Ziklag. You may remember in 1 Samuel 30 and took captive uh, David's and the other men's wives and their children and their stuff. That too was the Amalekites. Uh, you know, we read later how Paul says the Lord gave him a thorn in the flesh. Well, he gave Paul the thorn in the flesh. He gave Israel the Amalekites. Well, as the enemy approaches in verse 8, some translations say it came as here, fought with them. Some say it came and attacked them. We read how Moses chooses Joshua. 
Now, this is the first time Joshua is mentioned in the Scriptures. Interestingly, he's not introduced really in any way. He's referred to as being there. About this time, he would have been uh, probably around 45 years old. Uh, we know a lot more about Joshua than if we were just reading through the Bible and encountered him here. We think, well, Joshua, who's Joshua? Of course, we know uh, that he uh, later was the one who led Israel into the Promised Land and conquest, the whole book of Joshua bears his name uh, as a story of that. So we know a lot about him, but at this point, nothing much is said about him other than the Lord, uh, other than Moses, rather, chooses Joshua uh, kind of as the leader here and says, choose for us men, go out and fight with Amalek. So he turns here to to Joshua. We don't know how the choice was made. Presumably men who were uh, maybe skilled in fighting or just big and strong, or whatever it was, so we don't know how, how many he, choo- he, he chose to go out and fight. We only know uh, Joshua was put in charge of recruiting this force that was to go out and meet the challenge of the Amalekites. Now Moses isn't going to lead them in the battle, but he nevertheless has an important part to play. Uh, we read here he's going to go up and stand on top of the hill with the staff of God in his hand. Now, a couple of things to note about this, uh, one obvious and the other not. What's not obvious is when Moses says he's going to go stand on the hill, that he's not just saying that that's just a convenient place out of the way for him to go and uh, just to observe what happens from the top of the hill. The word that's used there is one that has the idea of a position of authority position of control or even uh, a military post. First Samuel 19, the word is used to describe Samuel as standing as the head of the company of the prophets. Uh, in Isaiah 21a, it refers to standing watch as a guard. So it can mean to stand, but the general sense is to stand in, a, in, a, in authority, to stand in leadership. And so Moses isn't just looking for some safe place to observe the battle. He actually is taking up his battle station, so to speak. He's going to his unique position. Now, that's not so obvious. What is obvious is that Moses takes with him the staff of God in his hand. Now, we are well acquainted with this this rod, this staff at this point, that this is the symbol of God's power. It was the staff. Uh, that, that Moses held over Egypt as God's power subdues Egypt. It was uh, this staff as the symbol of God's power that parts the Red Sea that allows Israel to escape from the oncoming Egyptian army. And it is the same staff representing the same power that will give them victory here. Now, these are their preparations as they come under attack, and we read what happened here. This was helpful as they were getting ready to go into the, into the promised land, as I said. Um, it instructs us as well. They said, well, you know, it would be great if, if, you know, if, we, if we had Amalekites attack, we'd know exactly what to do. But I uh, haven't noticed too many Amalekites around lately, so what does this say to us? Well, they had this enemy. Uh, we too, the people of God today, have enemies, and particularly an enemy uh, who is after us. And in fact, even here in this passage, the Amalekites were more than the Amalekites. On a, on a, a deeper level, an unseen level, this is playing out Genesis 3. This is the seed of the serpent once again trying to eradicate, trying to stamp out and get rid of 
the seed of the woman, uh, the seed of the, of, of the enemy attacking, trying to get rid of the seed of the Lord, the line of God's people in the world. And so it is with us. Our enemy really is not, first and foremost, other people or other religions. Our enemy is Satan himself, that we have enemies, and behind them is the enemy, Satan himself, who approaches, who attacks, who would try to to wipe out God's people, or if not wipe you out, at least do you severe damage. That's why later the Apostle Peter warns us that we live in enemy territory. He says that we need to be sober-minded, and we need to be watchful. We need to take, take up our post, or to use Paul's metaphor, to put on the whole armor of God. Peter says we need to be watchful because, as he says, your adversary, your enemy, not the Amalekites, but your adversary prowls around too, like a roaring lion, looking for someone to devour. Just like those Amalekites saw Israel perceive a threat, and they go after them, they attack them. How does Satan do that? Well, probably his most effective way is his oldest way that we're aware of, and that is trying to cause us to doubt God's word, to doubt its truth, to doubt its relevance, so that he can then lead us into sin, just as he did Eve and Adam in the Garden of Eden. And, you know, even with us, he has an advantage. He didn't have an Eden. He has the advantage of having a willing accomplice on the inside, our own fallen nature, our own sinful nature that that wants to listen to Satan's lies. Now, as a believer, we also have that new life in Christ that recognizes the deceitfulness, that recognizes the lies, and yet sometimes we want to believe the lies. We have to tell ourselves, no, we have to live by faith. We have to say, I see through that temptation, through that deceit, and I'm going to obey God. Now, that's Satan's foremost way of attacking, to cause us to doubt God's word so that sin begins to look good, so that we start to believe the lie, and we take a bite, and we rebel against God. That's how Satan devours us, and that's why we need to be on guard, not just outwardly, but within. That's why Peter says we need to be ready to fight. Resist him, Peter says, firm in your faith. Faith that God is good. Faith that God's word leads to blessing. Faith that obedience to it leads to life, to blessing, to joy. Faith that the lie of sin is just that. It's a lie. And it leads to harm. It leads ultimately to, to death. It does not deliver what it promises. It promises life, delivers death. So the preparation is made here in the face of an enemy. And as God's people, we need to continue to be prepared. So we still are in enemy territory, and we still have that, devour, that, that roaring lion looking to devour us. Well, second, we come to the battle itself. See this in verses 10 through 13, uh, where the battle actually is joined. And again, two things going on. One is obvious, and one is not so obvious. What is obvious here is, is the difference between here and the Red Sea, that here the people are to be active, at least those chosen to go and fight. Remember at the Red Sea... The Lord says, just stand. You just have to stand and see the deliverance of the Lord. You know, this, this mighty army is rumbling rapidly in their direction, and it's, it's coming on one side, and they're up against the Red Sea on the other. The Lord says, just watch and see the salvation of the Lord. Well, here they have a more active role to play. They're not to be quite so passive. Uh, there they didn't do anything to defend themselves except walk through the Red Sea when it opened up. Well, here they're active in their own defense. 
Joshua selects men. They go out to fight the battle, fight the Amalekites. They would have fought pretty much in close hand-to-hand combats with swords or knives. And since it tells us that there were times when Amalek was said to have the advantage to be prevailing, uh, we can imagine that Israel took casualties in this battle. Uh, Because there were times, it seems, when the momentum was with the Amalekites. Now, that's obvious that they were active in fighting. What's not so obvious is that the outcome of the battle was being determined not on the field, but on the hilltop where Moses was. Joshua engages the enemy. Well, Moses and Aaron and Hur went up to the top of the hill. And it doesn't say much other than as long as Moses' hands was up, presumably holding the staff of God, Israel had the advantage. But as you know, if you've ever had to hold your hands out, uh, the worst is painting. You know, when you're painting up above your head, your arm gets tired very quickly because most of us aren't used to having our hands up over our heads like that for long periods of time or even out. You try holding your hand out. Try holding something in your hand and holding your arm out for five minutes. Uh, you begin to experience what Moses did as it says that he grew weary. Uh, his arms got tired. And finally, he got so weary, it says he just couldn't do it anymore. And so they find a large stone for Moses, and he sits on the rock. And Aaron and her stand on either side of him and help hold his hands up. And as long as they were held up, Israel's winning. And with their help, he was able to keep his hands extended upward until the sun went down. And the result is found in verse 13. Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people with the sword. The word translated overwhelmed is a word his basic sense is weakness. The weakness or being laid prostrate. Uh, They were humbled. They were weakened. They were Overwhelmed, thoroughly defeated, and the idea seems to be they were decimated, that they took a lot of casualties. In other words, Joshua and Israel won a great victory over Amalek. But what's going on? What what does Moses and the staff have to do with the outcome of the battle? People have suggested different things. They have said, uh, for instance, that uh, this represents prayer, the prevailing power of prayer. Now, we certainly don't want to take anything away from prayer, but the fact is nothing said about prayer in this passage. Uh, what's more, Moses, as we read, was sitting, which was a very uncharacteristic posture for prayer, especially in the Old Testament. We often sit for prayer, in fact, probably sitting is our most customary posture for prayer. Uh, but frequently for them, the most ordinary posture for prayer was to stand, standing up. Uh, or perhaps kneeling down, but just sitting was not really a posture for prayer. So certainly we're all for prayer, but that doesn't seem like what this was really about or what was going on. Others have said, you know, as Moses lifting the staff, that was Israel's sign to advance. And as long as they were on the offensive, as long as they were uh, taking hold of the battle themselves, they were winning. But if they went into a more defensive posture, they were losing, which makes a great sermon on missions. But that doesn't seem to be what's going on here either. After all, it wasn't Moses, it was Joshua who was leading the army. Others said, well, the staff, you know, put a curse on the Amalekites or whatever, some magic power. Uh, No. In fact, we've already seen the staff is just the staff. There's nothing inherent in the staff itself. Uh, So what's going on here? What does this have to, to do with the outcome of the battle? Well, as we said, the staff was the emblem of the presence and the power 
of the Lord acting on behalf of his people. We've already seen it in Egypt. We've seen it at the Red Sea. Uh, it's not the staff itself, but it symbolizes God who would give them the victory. It certainly wasn't Moses. In fact, Moses is portrayed here as fairly weak. The man could, couldn't keep holding his arms up. It was his weakness that we see, not strength on Moses' part. It really wasn't even Joshua himself. Certainly he led and fought his best, uh, give credit to him and to the men for going out and doing what they needed to do, but even his own name is a reminder that it's not Joshua, the Lord, because the name Joshua means the Lord saves. So it's not Moses, it's not Joshua. It was God represented by that upheld staff. And years later, David would sum it up best when he went out to take, take on the Philistine champion, uh, the giant Goliath, uh, as, as uh, they're exchanging a few pre-battle pleasantries, or not so pleasantries. Uh, David says to Goliath, the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hand. That pretty much sums up what happened here with the Amalekites. That's the lesson the Lord wants them, wants us to learn. He could deliver them without their help, as he did at the Red Sea. He could deliver them by working through them, as he did here against the Amalekites. Either way, the power, either way, the victory is the Lord's. You see, that's a lesson that we need to learn as well, that the Lord acts. The Lord fights for his people. The Lord wins the battle for his people. Many years after the Amalekites ceased to be any threat whatsoever to the people of God, the Lord won a mighty victory for his people. He won it by going to the cross and dying there for the sins of his people, being raised up on the third day. And in an interesting connection with our passage here, the Lord won that victory over sin and death under the name Joshua. Well, in its Greek translation, the name was Jesus. But it's the same name, and it means the Lord saves. Third, we want to look at the memorial here, verses 14, 15, and 16. As we've seen, the pattern is that God is concerned that his people not forget who he is and what he has done for them. He gives them reminders along the way, and they themselves establish reminders along the way. And we see three ways here that Israel will remember this God-given victory. First, he tells Moses to write down an account of the battle. Now, that that practice uh, has been followed for a very long time. If you are a fan of the Patrick O'Brien series, you know that Jack Aubrey, the British sea captain, after a battle would have to record a very detailed account of it. What happened, movement of ships and so forth, uh, while the memory was fresh. Well, that's exactly what the Lord tells Moses to do here. The history needed to be recorded, needed to write it down. And so he does that. He writes down what happened. We have, presumably, uh, his, his account of it here. But then a second thing he tells them to do, he says, now recite it in the ears of Joshua. Joshua was there. He knew what happened. He was right in the middle of it. But the Lord says, nevertheless, this is in verse 14, write this as a memorial in a book and recite it in the ears of Joshua that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. Now, Joshua knew it, but the point was to make sure Joshua, who later would have a huge role to play in fulfilling God's purposes, make sure that Joshua never forgot 
what happened here with the Amalekites, how they won the battle. The battle was the Lord's, and he won it for them. And he didn't know the Lord would utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. Now, God's not being petty here, but this is just a, an expression of what would later happen with the Canaanites too, or many of them. Uh, unfortunately, they disobeyed and left some of them. Uh, but the point being that this was an expression of God's judgment on them at that time for their wickedness, their idolatry, for their rebellion, and Israel was God's instrument of judgment on them. But it also serves as a foreshadow of, of a future coming judgment, a great judgment, a universal judgment against all of those who have lived in rebellion against the Lord and against his Christ. And so write it down. Drill it into Joshua's head. Recite it to Joshua. Joshua gets singled out. Hear the story. But then the third thing he does is Moses here builds an altar. Now, an altar was a place for offering sacrifices, but they also served as a way, as a marker, a memorial. Uh, Noah built an altar to the Lord after the flood, kind of set the pattern. The patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, were great altar builders. They would build altars. Uh, later, uh, Gideon would build an altar to the Lord as well. Joshua would build an altar to the Lord. Now he's built it, he gives it a name. The name is, the Lord is my banner. Jehovah Nisi, the Lord is my banner. And the point is that the Lord was the one, he was like the flag under which they served. He was the ensign under which they lived. Um, could be referring to the practice of when an army is, is getting into disarray, of raising up a flag, kind of a rallying point, to pull everybody together, to get everybody regrouped. And Moses names this altar, the Lord is my banner. The glory is his. It's not Israel's. And as an explanation, he says in verse 16, a hand upon the throne of the Lord. Now, these words are difficult. In Hebrew, to interpret it, several different ways of understanding it. Uh, one could be uh, referring to the Amalekites. A hand upon the throne of the Lord is the upraised fist of defiance of the Amalekites. Therefore, he's going to wipe them out. Uh, some have also suggested the Lord's hand is raised up, swearing that he will defeat the Amalekites. But it seems the most likely way to understand it in the context a hand upon the throne of the Lord was Moses' upraised hand, grabbing hold of for help, as it were, the, the throne of God, looking to the throne of God for victory, for deliverance. And so in that positive sense, it seems to be what, what Moses is saying, that this altar, the Lord is our banner, is, is, is a marker to the fact they, took, they reached up, seized hold of the help, the throne, the rule, the victory of God, and God delivered them. And the Lord would have a war from Amal- with Amalek from generation a generation. Well, wait a minute. Did Israel win? Well, yes, they did. And yet Amalek would continue to be a difficulty for them, a thorn in their flesh for a long time to come. Yeah, they got whipped, but they would be back to trouble Israel again. It reminds me of Jesus in Luke 4, where he goes in the wilderness, he's tempted, and he counters Satan at every turn. And finally, Satan, uh, you almost see him licking his wounds. Uh, it crawls off, as it says, as Luke says there, until an opportune time. He was going to go bide his time and wait for another opportunity to attack. Well, Amalek, Amalek like Satan, w- would return, but his ultimate destruction is certain. 
This passage is a historical account, but at the same time, it's something of a paradigm for us in living the Christian life. It is instructive for us in living the Christian life. I want to just give you briefly five lessons that it teaches us. One, Christ, our Joshua, has won a victory for us. So trust in him. Look to him. That was what the Lord was teaching Israel here. He knew the kind of challenges they would face and ultimately fell before the challenge of taking Canaan. But he wanted to teach them. With the Lord fighting for you, victory is certain. Christ has won the victory. The cross. Now, like here, there are still fights to be fought. Uh, still trying to win this world for Christ. Still trying to win our own hearts for Christ. Uh, we still have those attacks of Amalek that come up that we have to fight. But we have to recognize that with the Lord as our victor, the Lord as our warrior, the battle is won. Uh, number two, along those lines, though the outcome is decided, we still do engage in conflict. Like I said, uh, our enemy is not people. It's not those who hate Christians. It's not those who kill Christians. Our enemy ultimately is Satan. And our best way to fight him is simply to spread the gospel, to make known the good news of Christ uh, outwardly and then inwardly, uh, to fight sin in our own hearts, to put sin to death within us. Third lesson we learned from this, the Christian life calls both for being passive and for being active. We looked at how Israel won at the Red Sea, how Israel wins here. The Lord calls them to be involved, and yet it is the Lord's doing. There are times when we are to be passive. For example, in our justification, we we simply believe in the Lord Jesus. We trust in him. There's not anything we do. Even our faith itself is a gift of God, but God calls us to trust in Christ and be saved, and we do. But there's also a part of the Christian life where we are to be active, where we ourselves are to be engaged, particularly in sanctification, where using the means God has given us, the means of grace, the word of God and prayer and so forth, we wrestle and fight against sin in our hearts. There are times when we have to, with God's help, exercise faith to see through temptation, exercise self-control to say no where we need to say no, to say yes where we need to say yes. Well, we need to be very active. Christian life isn't all just let go and let God. Yes, we're looking to the Lord, but sometimes he calls us to engage in the fight ourselves. Fourth lesson, we may suffer hits along the way. Israel, I'm sure, suffered some casualties in this this fight. They won, but there was some hurt as a result of it. Not death, at least injury. Well, the same is true in the Christian life. There will be times when we suffer defeats. There will be times when there are things that happen around us or to people around us that are very painful and very hard. Nevertheless, we recognize ultimate victory as ours. And then the last thing, the promised land is assured. That's what the Lord was teaching them here. The Lord is there to fight for them. and He will, as their warrior, as their champion, win every battle. They trust in him. If they obey him, they look to him, then he will lead them into the promised land. The problem, as you know, was that they didn't do that. They got ready to go in and they rebelled and said, no way, we can't do it. And the Lord sentenced them to wander 40 years in the wilderness. The reality is the promised land is ours. Christ has won it for us. And so in the midst of the battles, in the midst of the fights, Uh, We can nevertheless live the Christian life with joy because we know that the outcome has already been decided. That the Lord is our banner. That the Lord is our warrior.
who has won for his people victory. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this passage, and thank you, Lord, that you are the same God, that you are for your people, that as we trust in you, as we acknowledge your power, uh, that you will see us through. Father, we thank you that Christ has won the great victory, that the war already has been decided. Father, help us to be faithful in those battles that we face without and within. And Father, we pray that we too would see triumph in Christ. And we pray in his name. Amen.